Amen. Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. As we again work our way through this last prophet of the Old Testament, we are at Malachi 3, chapter 6 through 12. So far in this book, uh, we've seen what God cares about, that God cares for his people to know that he loves them. That's the point of chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. It's actually the point of election. It's not, it's not to say who can't be saved, but it is to bring assurance to the hearts of God's people that we're safe in his arms. And then we saw that God uh, cares for us to know that he is a great king. And we saw that he cares about our marriages. And then last week we saw that God cares about good and evil and justice, and especially to rescue us from his justice and purify a people for himself, to make us like him in all his goodness. So he is a refiner's fire, purifying a people for himself. And tonight we consider something else God cares about, and that is this. He cares about our use of his money. From Malachi chapter 3, consider that, friends, verses 6 through 12. This is the word of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's, let's go before him in prayer. Father, we ask that you would teach us your word and that you would grant that the words of my mouth would be faithful to it, And that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Harvey tells a lot of great stories. And one of my favorites that you may have heard me tell before is about the lady who had a turkey in her deep freezer. And uh, it had been there for 23 years. And so she called the Butterball Turkey Hotline. And there is one. And she called the Butterball Turkey Hotline. And she wanted to know, is the turkey still edible 
after 23 years? And the butterball answer man had the answer. He said, if it was at zero degrees for 23 years, then it's safe to eat. But it's going to taste like cardboard. (laughs) Throw it away. And her response, good. That's what I thought. We'll give it to the church. (laughs) A lot of people. And I should, in full disclaimer, I don't track the giving at the church. Uh, Your treasurer here has to account for it, but I don't do that. But But we have to say this. A lot of people across Christianity broadly, and certainly in the United States, only give to the church their leftovers. And we might argue that God is thereby robbed. There there are two uh, mentalities Christians will sometimes have. One is to say this, how much of my money should I use for God? The other, more biblical, is this, how much of God's money shall I use for myself? We want us to think, what does God say about this question? The food we eat is God's food, and the drink we drink is God's drink, and the money we spend is God's money that he has graciously given to us. Even if it's through your hard labor or an inheritance, it's his sovereign gift. So let me highlight three things from this passage I think he's saying to us about money. And he says three things here that I I want us to emphasize. In the first place, he says, return to me. And then he says, quit robbing me. And then he says, I want you to rely on me. Uh, In the first place, in verses 6 and 7, prior to him speaking about our money directly, he says, return to me. And in that we see that God wants us more than he wants our money. What's happening here in Jerusalem and among the people of God in that day? Well, the word on the street was that God had changed. Uh, He wasn't like he had used to be, they were saying among themselves. uh, They they said that God dealt differently with our forefathers and our ancestors. I mean, it it used to be he would bless them. He He would give them good crops and their vines and their fruit trees would bear fruit and they'd be prosperous. But now they're saying things are different. The economy has gone bad. They're not prospering. They've just been, they have been released from their enslavement and they've returned from exile, but the kingdom is not thriving. And they're in a recession and the money is tight and they said, God has changed. And God comes to them at verse 6 and says, I have not changed. You have changed. And that's where he begins. You, he says, have left me. Notice the language. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change. A.W. Pink once said it this way. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. He is an unchangeable being. I do not change, he says. Therefore, what? You're not consumed, he says to these children of Jacob. Uh, Their existence, their continuing existence as a people of God 
was a proof of God's unchanging faithfulness to them. If God had quit being faithful to them, they would have, they would have been destroyed in the exile. They, they would have disappeared as a nation. They would have no longer exist. So then what was the problem? What, what, why the reason for the, you know, the devouring locusts or other pests that were eating their crops? And why were their fruit trees not bearing or the, the uh, seeds falling to the ground and not producing? Why, why is this? They had left God. And he says, this isn't anything new. You have been doing this your entire existence as a people. Verse 7, from the days of our fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. There's nothing new among the people of God but turning away from the Lord their God. And God had begun to do what he had promised he would do. And that is this. He had warned them that if they leave him, Life would get hard. Life would grow difficult. He would make life difficult for them so that they would come back to him. And so that's what God is doing. And God actually calls them, return to me. Return to me and I will return to me. Return to you. And you see what he's saying? Before he ever gets to the issue of money, which is just an example, he says, I want you. That's what I want. I want all of you relationship is about facing one another it's about moving towards one another walking with one another you ever walk into a room where you know there's somebody there you've had maybe a messy disagreement with and and they see you and they turn their back that's not a healthy relationship have you ever seen somebody you've had a messy disagreement with and they're coming your way and you have ducked out of the room there's trouble in that relationship and God is saying you have turned your backs on me and you have walked away from me and that's been evident in a lot of ways in this book that's been evident how they doubted his love they dishonored his name they were chintzy and cheating and disobedient about the offerings that they were to give the sacrifices they, they were beginning to be, because of their unfaithfulness to him, they were beginning to be unfaithful to one another in their marriage relationships and home life. And they had, as we saw last week, they'd begun to slander God and said, uh, God doesn't care about good and evil. I mean, where's the God of justice? In all these ways, they had evidence they had, they had walked far from him. and They didn't even know who he was properly. And now he picks up another example to prove the point. And his example is in their giving, their use of their money, or, or better, their failures to be good stewards of God's money. Stop robbing me in tithes and offerings is what God says to them. So I want to say, if you think this passage is chiefly about your money, you have missed the point of this passage. This is about you and about your heart and your walk with the Lord. That's, that's what it's about. It's, and we could say this, the easiest way to know what's going on in your heart is to look at what's going on with your checkbook. See where your money is going. If you have money, that's the easiest way to see what your relationship to God is like because it's the easiest way to see what you value most in life. So giving is a heart issue. Uh, listen, friends, 
remind yourself of the gospel. What is the gospel? The essence of the gospel is God giving. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son. And the proper response to the gospel is what? It's to receive what he gives. It is to rest in his provision for you. It is to believe in Jesus and to believe in Christ and to know that all that the Father has, he shares with you as a co-heir with Christ. One fruit or evidence that you believe that gospel is that you yourself become a giver. Why? Because you begin to become like him and he's a giver. He's abundantly generous. So we want to say this, friends. God doesn't want your money unless you delight in giving it because you delight in him. He wants you and your heart first. As Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, he says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, Paul is saying, don't give to the Lord unless you can give cheerfully. Don't give to the Lord if you feel coerced to give or constrained to give. If that plate is passed and you don't want to put money in it, do not put money in it is what the Apostle Paul says. You, God wants you to give cheerfully, willingly, voluntarily, delightedly because you delight in him. Because you see that he's given you far more and far more abundantly. And you're just responding in love to the God who's loved you. Friends, this is important. God can build his kingdom with us or without us. The kingdom doesn't hang in the balance based on your support of ministry. However much or little it is. The kingdom here at Redeemer doesn't depend upon your support. However much or little it is. God will raise up those who will support his ministry and his work and do so happily. He delights to do that. The only question is, will we get the privilege of participating in the work of God here at Redeemer or wherever we find ourselves? Or will somebody else get that privilege? Will we miss out on that privilege? So the chief concern here, friends... In Malachi is not your money. The chief concern is you. God reaches out to us and he says to his people, return to me. I will return to you. And then he talks to them about their money. And then look at that in verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. How shall we return, they they say at the end of verse 7. Verse 8. God says, you're robbing me. Will a man rob God? God says, you are. You're robbing me. And what we see here is that God wants us to be generous supporters of his kingdom and his ministry. Verse 8, it's it's, it's somewhat of a a rhetorical question. And I think it's meant to be a bit humorous. uh, Because the the weight of the verb is uh, is, uh, strong. It's... It's a, a, a verb that uh, means to mug or to uh, take something forcibly from somebody else. You can almost hear the Lord saying, will a man mug God? I mean, will a, a puny little human being, you know, steal from the sovereign of the universe as they accost him and 
you know, take his wallet? It's, it's kind of funny and it's absurd. And you expect the answer to be, well, no, of course not. I mean, who could ever do that? And then God says, but you are robbing me. And that's totally unexpected. It's almost like he said, of course a man can't rob, rob God. But you people have figured out a way to do it. And they reply, who, me? How have we done that? And God answers, you did it when you failed to give what I've commanded. He sees their failure of stewardship, of faithfulness to the Lord as a failure of loyalty to God, a failure of trusting in God, a failure of putting God first in their lives, which is what God wants. Now, let's ask this question, though. What are these tithes and offerings, and does this apply to Christians today? Well, in the first place, what are these Old Testament tithes? A tithe is a tenth. That's the meaning of the expression. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes. They were set apart by God, and the other 11 tribes were to tithe or give a tenth to the Lord in support of his work and ministry that the Levites and priests did in the temple. And in the tabernacle prior to that, the the other tribes were to bring 10% of their produce, their oil, their wine, and they were to bring that to the Lord. And the Lord said in Numbers chapter 18, verse 21 about this, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So the people gave the tithe to the Lord. And the Lord turned around and gave it to the Levites for the work of ministry that they did so that they would be spared having to do the other kinds of work necessary to live life. Now, what about the offerings? What are the offerings? Well, they were especially for the priests among the Levites. Whenever people would bring a sacrifice to the temple, whether it was a grain offering or an animal offering, a portion of that would be burned up on the altar and given to the Lord that way and a portion of it would actually go to the priest ministering on their behalf and it would feed him and his family it's kind of his daily ration and this and other things are are what we're talking about with the offerings here and and that's why you see God say uh, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house in other words bring it into the room in the temple that stores the food so there's food for the ministry and the ministers and so the problem of course was this they weren't doing that and their sin wasn't so much a sin against the Levites and the priests, but it was, in fact, a sin against God himself who had first commanded it. So, uh, so that's what the tithes and offerings are. What about us? We ask that question. Many people think that in the Old Testament, you know, people had to give. But in the New Testament, we're free of an obligation to give. We don't have to give anymore, but maybe we want to give. That people will say, you know, in the Old Testament, you had to. I mean, it clearly commanded But in the New Testament, you know, we no longer have to, but we're going to give because we want to, if we want to. And what should we make of that kind of thinking? I think Jesus says to us that kind of thinking is wrong. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is describing the Christian life to his disciples in in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says this in explaining what the Christian life looks like. He says, when you give... Give in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say, if you give. He says, when you give, under the assumption that his disciples are going to be givers. 
Friends, it's not an optional part of being a disciple to be a giver. So we're to give, but are Christians to tithe? That's a further question. Now, we can say a few things about that. On the one hand, the only passage in the New Testament that explicitly, apparently authorizes the tithe for Christians does so, as D.A. Carson says, in a rather backhanded way. And that is a text in Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You catch Jesus' point there. His point is to criticize the unscrupulous um, activity of the religious leaders who, you know, they go out in their backyard and they find the herbs they're growing and they're, oh man, we're going to be tight about this. We're going to make sure a tenth of that plant comes off so the rosemary gets to the temple. But they didn't give a rip about justice and mercy and faithfulness and neighbor love, not really. So they could feel self-righteous and arrogant and proud. I do what God says I should do with regard to my money. And so Jesus is, is very firmly critiquing them. But in doing so, he says, these you ought to have done, justice and mercy, without neglecting the others. He upholds the principle of tithing for them at, at, in the very least. It's also worth pointing out, I think, this, that that the tithe predates the existence of Israel as a nation. It predates, actually, the establishment of God's law through Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. We know that because it was found early in the life of God's people. For instance, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, this strange king-priest who sort of comes out of nowhere in Genesis 14. Abraham tithed to him the lesser tithing to the greater. And so I think there is some case for an argument based on that, that the tithe is basic to human life. It's not just an Old Testament legal code of ethic under the Mosaic law, just for the Old Testament times. But listen, friends, even if you don't buy either of those arguments as applying to a mandate that Christians tithe, let me ask you this question. Do Christians have to give that much a tithe? Or can we get by with less? Is really what people are asking. And I think rightly, Ligon in that article I gave you says this. Paul the Apostle scuttles the whole debate. When in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, 8 and 9 are chapters about giving... He says this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. In other words, he's telling you, the Apostle Paul is telling you, he's reminding you that the giving of the Corinthians was designed to be based on the self-giving of Jesus. Jesus became poverty-stricken in order that he might make you eternally and everlastingly, surpassingly rich. 
And that ought to motivate you on the one hand, but it also, he also ought to be your example in giving. So our question shouldn't be, Lord, how little can I get by with giving? But instead, Lord, how can I be more like you? Christ's self-giving is now the standard for our giving. And we're to aim to follow his example in self-sacrifice. Surely then we're not going to argue that we who have seen the Lord of glory crucified in a way an Old Testament saint only had promised but never saw fulfilled. Surely we're not going to argue that we can be less grateful and less generous than an Old Testament saint. Let me ask you this question. Do you dream of one day being so wealthy that you can give boatloads of money to the kingdom of God and its causes. But you're not really giving now. I would say don't fool yourself. You know the name J.D. Rockefeller? Rockefeller, the, the famous Rockefeller. He was the founder of Standard Oil Company. It no longer exists, but he became, based on it, the America's first billionaire and the wealthiest man in America at the time. He was a devout Baptist. He retired early and spent the last 40 years of his life giving his money away and really set a a standard for what a philanthropist is like for the next 100 years. He said this, I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed my first salary, which was a buck 50 a week. I think he's just being realistic. If he hadn't started early, he never would have gotten to it later. Don't wait for someday when you're rich. You'll never get started. If you love God and his kingdom, you love his ministry, support it now. That's what the Bible is saying to us. But for the Israelites, back in their day, because they were robbing God, it says very clearly in verse 9 that the whole nation had left the sphere of God's blessing and had come under the sphere of God's cursing. Notice the language of verse 9. You are cursed with a curse for you are Robbing me, the whole nation of you. You're robbing me, God says, and it's not paying off for you, is what he's telling them. You're robbing me, and your crops are being eaten by the locusts, and your, your fruit vines are dropping their fruit. In other words, God brings the punishment to bear on them that actually fits the crime, so to speak. What do we mean by that? He says, Well, they're wanting to hold on to their things, their produce, their oil, their wine, instead of giving it to the Lord. And then they're discovering that actually they have less and less produce and wine and oil over time because it's under a curse. They're so trying to hold on to what they do have that it's actually disappearing out from underneath them. That principle is a biblical principle. We see it in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. Which says this, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. So, friends, God wants them and he wants us to be generous, willing, cheerful supporters of his kingdom and ministry. But maybe that's what makes us fearful. Give self-sacrificially with the standard of Jesus being my guide to what I might do for others. 
what will that do to my family finances, we say to ourselves? How am I going to feed the kids this week if I do this? What about the, the children's education fund? And what about the vacation we're saving for? And what about retirement when I'm too old? And all of those, in their own way, are good and important things. But what about those things? God knows our fears. And he meets us in our fears in verses 10 through 12, where he says the last thing. Not only does he say, I want all of you return to me. And not only does he say, quit robbing me, but be a generous, cheerful giver. He says, rely on me, trust in me, and watch me provide for you. That's the language of verses 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And he, and he actually says, put me to the test, and he, and he follows up with three promised blessings. The blessing of abundance, the blessing of protection, and the blessing of being an honor to his name for the sake of others. Notice in the first place that the promise here, the gracious motivation we have to be a generous giver by the promise of blessing. He says to Israel, and again, this is extremely important in the context, they're poor and they're suffering and they're saying, Lord, we're poor and if we give more What are we going to do? And God's response is this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse and put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing for you until there is no more need. Our temptation is always going to be, especially when times are tough, is to skimp on what we give to the Lord. And these people have that temptation. And God knows that, and he immediately says to them, I want you to fill up my house with what I have told you to give me in my word. And you watch me fill up your house. And I know all of us just said, isn't that what the health wealth preachers preach? Isn't that what those crazy people on TV talk about when they say, you know, just send in your check for $1,000 today and I promise you'll get, you'll get, you'll come up out of that bed and you'll be healed and God will make you wildly rich. Just send me your check today, please. Isn't that, isn't that what they do with texts like this? That is what they do with texts like this. They promise you the way to get rich is fill their pockets with your money. That is not what this text is saying, and it is certainly not the motivation behind this passage, friends. Again, think of 2 Corinthians that Paul says in in chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, and we read this a lot, he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, And he goes on to end that at verse 11 by saying this, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The language is be generous now and you will be enriched so that you can go on being generous. Believer in Philadelphia, Captain Levy, was asked how he could give so much to the Lord's work and yet still be a a wealthy man. And he replied, oh, as I shovel it out, 
God shovels it in, and the Lord has a bigger shovel. Are you holding back on Christian giving because you don't think you can afford it? Then in God's sovereignty and wisdom, he wrote this verse for you. You can't outgive God. As someone once said, the desire to be generous and the means to be generous both come from God. And there's a promised blessing. Be a generous giver and God will see that you have means by which to be generous. The second is the promise of protection. You see it in verse 11 when he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it, will be dis- it won't destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not bear, fail to bear. It's a, it's a promise of protection. Uh, he's going to, in other words, he's going to alleviate the curse that's been on them, that's been troubling them. The curse he mentioned in verse 9. And it's kind of ironic. God says, when you give, you gain. And when you give away, you gain. And why? Because the curse of the devourer is rebuked. There's a promise to them of protection. And how often have the people of God seen that as they give out the oil, the oil never runs dry and never turns foul. But finally, there's this promise, friends. It's the promise that you will be an honor to his name. In verse 12, he he gives an evangelistic motivation for giving. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. Listen, friends, in a church where God's people are cheerfully generous and self-sacrificial, God's kingdom advances and his ministry is supported and missionaries are sent to the far corners of the world and the, the needs of the poor among us are met and the community demonstrates love in very practical and tangible ways and non-Christians take notice of those things. Our giving is a witness to the nations that God is faithful to his promises, that he is a generous God, because look how generous his people are. And he is a generous God. He gave us his son. Will he not also graciously give us all things? Of course he will. So don't fear outgiving God. Rely on him to bless you and protect you, and to honor himself through you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these uh, encouragements and promises. Uh, We thank you that you gave far more abundantly to us than we will ever return to you. And I pray that you would ease our anxieties, calm our fears, that you would help us to be good managers of our money, but that you would most especially help us to enjoy walking with you and in serving in your kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.